All right. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of this security podcast. My name is Jay from Learn Linux TV, and with me I have Zhao from Cloud Linux. Yeah. Hi, Jay. Uh, as I said, my name is Joao. I'm tech evangelist at uh, Cloud Linux, and it's a pleasure to join you here today. And we're the host. He's not a guest. We're, we're, we're both the hosts of this podcast. This isn't a special guest kind of thing. We are the stars of the podcast. Well, I mean, stars, should I have used that word? But anyway, we are the host <laughs> of the podcast. We're talking about security. This is the very first episode, and it's, you know, there's not going to be any structure yet. I'm going to call this episode zero because when it comes to IT people, we prefer to start at zero, let's be honest. So this is episode zero, and then we'll have a cadence as this goes on based on user feedback. But the um, most of the topics are going to be centered around um, enterprise Linux security. And as we were kind of preparing to record this episode zero, we're kind of in the mindset of we have so much to talk about. Um, that's what do we talk about? And then I'm thinking that's great. That means we have content and we're not going to run out. So we're going to talk about security. Yeah. Security content is a never ending bit. I almost want to say, is it going to be more about insecurity than security? Because if everything, if security was actually a thing, we wouldn't even have a podcast, would we? You're right. <laughs> but it's not just security and insecurity. It's probably also best practices that yep. people should actually be following and they're not, or they have the, the actual bullet points to follow and then they just skip them. And it's getting people in the right mindset. If this podcast yep. helps that, it's amazing. Yep, and we're going to talk about some high-level things in this episode. In future episodes, we'll dive in deeper. And also, I'm sure there's going to be some security issues in the news, and we'll have to just you know dedicate an episode to a security issue every now and then. That's just kind of how it goes. I think that some structure, you know, we can't, there's some structure we can't have because we don't know what's going to happen. Someone comes up with an, you know, we were just talking before we hit the record button. You hold, or there was a point where you hold down enter for, you know, a certain amount of time when the grub password's on the screen and you're into the system without yeah. even knowing the password. So there's clever people out there. But one of the things, that I think we could start with. And um, I'm basically using a list that Zhao presented me with before we started the record button, but I'm going to go a little out of the order here because I think we should talk about the weakest link first because security mm -hmm. is only as good as the weakest link. Yeah. Um, so the, the weakest link idea here is that whenever you have a lot of systems running in your network, and this is just on the technical side. There are other ways to look at the, the weakest link aspect here, and we'll cover that in a moment. But looking at the technical side of stuff, when you have 100 servers, when you have 1,000 servers running on your network, everything is just as safe as the most unsafe one of those is. So yep. let's say if you have a vendor that supplied you with a print server that you just deployed in a corner and are never again looking at it, and it's just running there because it's a print server, what else is it supposed to be doing? Well. Right. It could easily just be sniffing all traffic. It could easily just be creating a list of other systems on your network passively, just looking at the traffic that goes by. And yeah, that's a very big hole in your security. You right. really need to look at all your systems as being critical, not just one or two of them. Yep. And sometimes the weakest link can be a person and not a system as well, because what one thing I feel like is that a lot of companies out there, they don't do a good job with training their employees. And mm -hmm. even if they do train their employees, 
they might be missing policies that mandate what the employee is required to do. It's one thing for an employee to take the training and pass it, but it's another thing where it should be implemented in the policies and procedures of the company. Because I've had, I mean, I've seen all kinds of stories out there. Um, and, and there's there's no shortage of these, like like one of which they, um, I can't, obviously I'm not going to mention the company name even if I did know it, but it was all over the news. I can't remember how many years ago. But there was this um, individual, a woman who worked at a company. She was not in IT. She was more of an office manager type, I believe. And she had access to the, you know, all the files on the file server. What could possibly go wrong? Well, she was smart enough to know that she needed to be careful around the files. So she wasn't the kind of person that's going to accidentally delete things. That's good. But one thing that happened is that she was randomly looking up job posts and saw her position being offered for the company she worked for. And she immediately thought that she was it, she was going to be fired because why else are they posting my job to the public? And she decided to get revenge. She would go in and delete everything out of the file server. Just I assume oh, control A, delete, enter, whatever she did, she wiped them all out. Now, as luck would have it, or I should say, you know, not luck on her side, um, they were actually just trying to offer or hire her an assistant. <laughs> It was not her. That's job. one way to look at it. So I'm pretty sure she went to jail or got fined or something. But you know, in that situation, she was the weakest link because an office manager was allowed to delete everything. And I think it is very important if you can get away with this, read only access to the people that need to access the files and only the people that need to change files get read right, things like that. But she was the weakest link. She's a person, and like Jao mentioned, a server like a print server can easily be the weakest link. I mean, yeah. if you see a random Raspberry Pi in the corner, you might want to find out why that's there. Yeah. <laughs> or if you see a network cable just going into the, the ceiling and you don't you don't have no idea where that cable is going, you should probably look and see if there's something connected to it on the other end. Yep. Um, but going back to the weakest link and to the, to the people side of it, Human engineering is the biggest part of hacking. Yeah. If someone can convince you that they're from tech support and you need to enter your password just for them to check something on your account, yeah, that's the weakest link. Mm -hmm. All of this is part of the same problem. It is. All of your infrastructure, all of your training, everything, it has to be done properly and people actually have to follow those best practices and have to follow whatever is implemented on the company. That's if you have right. a if you have a policy that requires you to change your password every two weeks, which is weird and will annoy your users, you should actually enforce that. Right. It's it's not a very secure practice to just rely on passwords. But anyway, if your policy is to change it every two weeks, make sure everybody does. Have no exceptions, even if it's the CEO. Oh, especially else he is the <laughs> else he will okay. be the weakest link. That's, and this is really tricky. This is this is a really problem for a real problem for for the IT teams to both to implement and to enforce. IT teams usually don't have that kind of power on the on the company to actually enforce this on all levels of the structure. People will just say, "Yeah, you have that policy now. Create an exception for me and don't bother me again with this." And yeah, yeah. some places this is a problem. And, you know, sometimes I, as much as I hate to say this, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know who among our audience might be a fan of Dr. House, that, that show from way back. And his famous line was, everybody lies. That's what yeah. he would say. And 
I don't want to be that guy because I'm an optimist, right? I, I like to think the best of everyone, and I do by default. But when it comes to IT, you know, you got to be careful with that. Um, and, and sometimes users, they don't tell you the truth. I remember in my help desk days, I, I go to a person and and they have a problem. I'm like, well, did you reboot your computer? Um, I think there might have been a you know patch that went out or something like that. And yeah. they said, yeah, yeah, I, I rebooted and didn't help. So I double click on the networking icon and I say, well, if you rebooted, then why does your network <laughs> here show uptime of over a week? Yeah. Fine, I'll reboot. So <laughs> unfortunately, you, you have, you know, trust but verify, I guess. You just have to, you know, think the best but assume the worst and then just see what happens and make sure, like Zhao said, you, you know, the policies need to be enforced. I mean, what's the point of having policies? They're not, if they're yeah. just suggestions, right? Yeah. Um, make it happen. Make, lock them out if they if they um, didn't reset their password and don't have exceptions. Absolutely. And I wanted to touch on the, you know, you mentioned social engineering, because mm -hmm. I think that's an important, there, there's a mindset we need to destroy, because I feel like a lot of people, when they think of hackers, they think of the movie Hackers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's someone at the keyboard, the crunching codes, you have these 3D terminals and in and, and polygons that are going by the screen and he's like shooting each one with letters and um, hitting commands and it's just and this people typing thing. typing three letters on the keyboard and two full screens of text just show up and yeah and they right. never make a mistake and hit backspace or use the mouse or <laughs> <laughs> it, it's so not like that there was a famous yeah. hack I you know this was an individual hack but the same thing could could happen to um, a company and this individual was hacked so hard and this was a person Elvis online presence files, everything was wiped. I mean, someone just, I think they called Amazon. They had just enough information from a Whois lookup for the person's domain. So they had their address. Um, I forgot my password and I'm I'm this person, honest. Um, but here's my address to verify my account, to verify it, reset the password. And then that gave him you know, access to that. Then he got access to, the person got access to Gmail. I'm not really sure the order. Yeah. Um, by getting more information, they were able to call additional companies pretending to be that person and getting further and further in just because they wanted his Twitter handle. They really liked his Twitter username and they wanted to have it for themselves. So that whole thing Whoa. happened and they literally went into iCloud because they got access to that too, wiped his machine, his Mac, his iPhone, his iPad, all of his files, cleaned Gosh. everything out and then got the Twitter account. And we we're talking family photos and everything. And this wasn't somebody who was you know, executing a CVE vulnerability or, or use, utilizing that, yeah. you know, typing codes at a 3D terminal like they do in the movies. It was literally somebody just picking up the phone and calling, pretending to be the person, and that's all they had to do. You just need to convince whoever's on the other side of the line. That's it. Hack, most of the hacks are that. All that stuff that you see, the, the Wireshark captures the, the trace routes, all that that you see in the movies. Most of the time, you don't need that to, to hack somebody and to get access to a system. I think that's why we get kind of excited. And I hate to get excited when there's a massive security vulnerability, because that means people are going to go through you know, some hardships. They might have to do some extra work. And we don't want that. But we get kind of excited sometimes, because when you have a vulnerability, it's like actually something that's highly technical when most hacks are not. Most hacks are just mm -hmm. social engineering. So you get one where someone is you know, actually, actually, you know, overrunning a buffer or something like that, that's exciting yeah. because that is closer to that exciting thing that we were hoping for, um, which happens in the news sometimes. But um, yeah, weakest link. Um, you definitely need to know yeah. who that is and 
or what that is, if it's a thing and not a person, okay. it's either a person or a thing or both, just know what it is. Trust no system and enforce your policies. That's Absolutely. the takeaway from this. Absolutely. And then the next thing is perimeter security. So um, I think that means you should just let everybody in. You know, hi, I'm Bob. <laughs> I, I work here on It's my first day. Yeah, come right in, Bob. Have, have, have a nice yeah. time. <laughs> it's actually the other way around. You shouldn't right. let anything in that shouldn't actually ha have to get in. Um, you don't open everything and then start closing. You close everything and then start opening exactly what you need, the ports that you need for the, the target systems that you actually need them to be open. Yep. Um, sometimes I see the other way around. You just open everything and now I'm going to attack that server and I'm going to block that, those connections. Yeah, and then you forget one port and you forget one yep. service or one system and then again, you have that weakest link. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I worked for a company a, a long time ago I hope this is not the case now, so I'll, I'll protect the name of the innocent and I'll call them Acme. They had a line printer, an old-fashioned line printer, in the server room. And every single person, which was probably at least 12 people, that needed to grab printouts from said line printer would go into the server room to fetch that. And the cabinets weren't locked. Stack of hard drives, parts, network cards, you name it. Server rack wasn't locked. They could just plug in a flash drive. If they wanted to, they can just insert a network cable. Nobody was stopping them. Um, to be fair, you know, IT, the department was right there with the, you know, the door to the server room. But if we're all out to lunch, then that doesn't really matter much. And who's to say we're going to notice somebody walking in if we're heads down in a major project? And actually, when I was there, there was no problem. There was no hacks. There's no um, system failure. Nobody did anything naughty surprisingly, um, but that could have easily went the wrong way because, you know, it's surprising how many server rooms go unlocked. Yeah, and there it's also surprising how many server doors, actually the doors to the data center where the servers are, that have these amazing biometric locks and then the door is wooden and the hinges are old. So yep. you basically could just shoulder the door and then get in anyway but um, yeah that's the the physical side of it the, the that's also very important obviously you should really take physical security into account when you're designing your infrastructure yep. and then on the network side you should really look at good perimeter firewalls you should really go look at good networking equipment that lets you do flow captures and trace the flows and restrict everything yep. and even better if you can have some something like an application firewall protecting your web servers. That's also really important, something that can actually look at the traffic and look at the requests that get in and get out. And almost as important, if not as important, your network firewall should block going from the inside to the outside as well. You don't want people exfiltrating data from your right. systems to the outside. It's not just getting stopping people from getting in. You also need to stop the data that you don't want to get out to actually leak. You need to stop that as well. So your firewall should block both ways, unless you actually have a need for a specific system to talk to the outside. Block by default everything. Absolutely. And I, I've experienced this. I have to be careful what I say. Um, but I'll just say this. I worked for a company that had a large number of financial records and data. And it was not a very comfortable situation to see a coworker being led outside of the building by police in handcuffs. Yeah. 
you know, maybe they should have had a policy like that to where they're watching and better yet locking outbound traffic because someone actually did exfiltrate data. They had access to it and they were, you know, they were put in cuffs and walked out of the building by police. And that is definitely not something you want to see. They, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to meet up with this person, you know, for lunch. Oh, I can't. They're in jail. Great. Um, it, it happens, right? We, we don't want to think the worst of people, but people will do the things that some people will do. Yeah. And yeah, def you definitely want to protect those things for sure. Of course. Your data is your most valuable access asset in, in any company today. Yep. Even personal, your personal data is your most valuable asset. You don't want that getting out with, outside of your control at any point. So if Absolutely. it's stored in your systems, even if it's at home, you should be really careful with that. If you're relying on something like, say, Nextcloud or OnCloud or something like that for your own personal cloud solution at home, pay very good attention to the firewall that's protecting that server. Don't restrict the traffic that goes from the outside towards it, but also the other way around. If somebody already got into the server, he's going to try to get that data out back right. somewhere. Block that. Don't Absolutely. let that out in any way. You have, if you have control over the perimeter firewall, you have control over that. Don't let traffic that you are not supposed to see go through actually get through. Block everything. Absolutely. That's the mindset to have here. And better yet, just don't even open it to the public if it's your personal yeah. server or if it's a server inside your company that you, in you're a company that you do not actually collaborate with other people outside the company, there's no reason for that file server to be open. I mean, we could argue that security is, or excuse me, yeah, security is the, excuse me, let me start over. Convenience is the enemy of security. Yes, and it is. that is extremely true. So yeah, it's inconvenient that you have to go through a few layers to get access to that next cloud server, but it's better because if it's not exposed, then you know it's far less likely unless there's a vulnerability chain that somebody's going to get access to that. So absolutely. Um, and I'll ask you a question too, just to, I think I know what you might say, but um, have you ever found a good use case for a database server to be externally available? Yeah, if you wanted to to be hacked, <laughs> other than that, there's no good way, good reason to have it exposed. Um, but yeah, and not only to the outside. This for that specific use case, both for the file server and the database, you should have your network segmented. You shouldn't have all machines connecting to that database server. They don't need to. If you have applications that talk to the database server, allow only those to reach that server. Segment the network, use VLANs, use uh, different networks, subnets, do whatever you want, but don't expose those servers even to other machines on your network. Again, because of that weakest link, if something gets compromised inside the perimeter, you want to have further barriers between those systems and the, the important ones. Yep. And I I've seen at least one case where a managed database service defaulted all newly created databases to be accessible by 0.0.0.0 slash .0, .0, .0, 0, just everybody. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm like, why? I mean, a database server is is not what users interact with. So, so for people listening and they're like, why wouldn't you want that? Well, you have a server, like a website that your customers go to, but the database should be inside the network, not outside because the web server talks to the database server. The database server itself shouldn't talk to the internet. There's just no yeah. reason for that. And there are ways around that. If you actually need that database server to connect some machine somewhere else, use a VPN servers, yep. uh, create an IPsec tunnel, do some kind of encryption on the traffic before opening it to 
actually never open it to 000. Just open it to specific addresses or just make people use VPN connections, secure VPN connections at that. Look at OpenVPN, it's free. It's okay, it's not that trivial to configure properly, but it's right. a good solution to, to encrypt traffic and to let people that are outside reach the systems inside. And it offers some degree of safety in that connection. And yep. never, ever expose those systems outside. That's never Absolutely. a good idea. Let's talk about honeypots. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to let you be the star of the show on this because I, I, <laughs> I know what they are and I know why you want to run them. But um, for honeypots, how do you feel about that? What do you like about those? Okay, so uh, basically honeypot is a system that you deploy that is not running any actual service that's important that you depend on, but is running some mock-up services that actually just log the traffic and try to capture um, access attempts. So this can be a dedicated solution. There are Linux distributions specifically tailored to be used on honeypots. And, or it could just be something as easy as setting up IP tables with the log target and just going through those logs somewhere and seeing who attempted the, the connections to that machine. And the idea is that you set those systems in such a way that they are basically at the same level as the other systems on your network. So that if somebody is trying to map your network or to access or to map the, the systems that are accessible, they will find that honeypot and you will get a, an indicator of compromise, an indicator that somebody tried to access that server and nobody should be trying to access it. So you know that whatever access that was, it wasn't intended. It was either a, a basic <laughs> scan by Shodan or something like that, or someone actually trying to get into your network and finding your vulnerable systems. And now you have an IP that you can feed your perimeter network and you can block at the network and no longer let it in the, the perimeter. Yep. So honeypots are fun because then you could just, I mean, you gotta be very careful with this, but you can get an idea of what people are doing out there today to, to get in and what kinds of scripts are they running? I mean, obviously, don't open scripts, don't click on anything that they put yeah. on the server because you yourself could be creating the problem you were trying to avoid. But in a controlled environment, restricted, network cable disconnected, no access to anything other than a power cable. If it's a VM, you just basically disconnect the virtual network card and just poke around at it. You kind of see some of the things that they're doing. And I think on one of them, I saw something I thought was pretty clever, but on your end, you probably have seen this like every day, where I think they had a crypto miner running at like 49% of the CPU, knowing that most companies, if it gets to 80-90% CPU, are like, oh my God, it's it's triggering. I need to check the server out. But they made sure the CPU was never maxed out. So that way it was very unlikely that it was going to trigger a notification system, go under the radar and, and maybe get them a Bitcoin or two. Uh, you know, I've seen that. And they in that case, they used a vulnerability in Tomcat to get into the server. The, this is just an aside, but the, related yeah. to crap, crypto miners that are just uh, installed under the radar, the most amazing one I've seen is the one that runs on Postgres. They don't <laughs> install it. It never gets installed in the system. It's through a network connection to the database and they deploy it to the database and it runs inside the database. You never see a process just doing the crypto mining. Your Postgres wow. will just pack the CPU and they'll use that to, to mine it. That's the, the most amazing use of the of that yeah. that I've seen. They're so clever. Yeah. So clever. I think it goes without saying you have to be very careful with honeypots and let somebody know that you're doing this because if um, I don't want anyone to lose their job because they oh I'm gonna you know run a honeypot on my company's network and yeah. 
Um, I'm sure they'll love me and give me a promotion when I catch a hacker red-handed. No, you'll probably be walked out the door because you're violating the policy, depending on what your job actually is. And when it comes to cloud providers, it'd be even worse if you know, you're doing everything right, controlled environment, and then that traffic is seen by your cloud provider, and then they flag your entire company's AWS, Google Cloud, or whatever kind of account you have, and shut your whole, you know, everything down. Make sure it's controlled, and you let the right people know, and make the right phone calls before you do something you, like that. You can run, you can run it totally passive. You don't even have to create any any traffic initiated on your server. You just leave the the logging services on on that honeypot that you create, and then you just log the track that reaches your server. You don't need to, to reply with anything. You'll capture lots of traffic. Anybody yep. can do this test real quick. If you deploy a Linux server, a new Linux server, you install the server completely from scratch. It doesn't matter what distro you use. Just deploy something, start SSH, and then look at var log secure. Mm -hmm. I bet you that within 60 seconds, if that port is exposed to the internet, you're going to start to see uh, login attempts. You absolutely from China, are. from Russia, from whatever the absolutely. place, you're going to start to see login attempts. And that really points out the need to have honeypots, right? Because somebody is always trying to find. You have thousands of bots everywhere just looking for new systems to exploit, and they'll be looking for services and open ports and all that. And you need to capture that traffic before it reaches your actual servers. And the honeypot is a great way to, to get that. And talking about SSH, um, for the YouTube channel, I have a completely separate Linode account. So it's not connected to any production, anything. And it was given to me just to use for you know recording videos. So I could set up an Alma Linux server, for example, and it's complete, completely disposable. It's you know not in reach of anything production, like I mentioned. I could just you know do the recording, go through the commands, delete it. I just kill the server. So in that case, I'm not really going to spend as much time securing it because sometimes what I'm teaching people is how to secure something. So I'm starting it out insecure anyway. And I've seen situations where I, I, I just leave my office to go grab a snack and I come back and I log into that server and it'll say something like 46 login attempts since yeah. the last time you were on here. And it, you know, I expect that kind of thing. That would probably be jarring to someone just starting out, like, oh my God, 46 attempts. I mean, you could probably have thousands of attempts on there um, if you don't implement some security. So I say, as an aside, um, my policy with production servers is it doesn't even touch the internet ever until it's fully patched, everything has been checked, and you know it's clear, everybody agrees, yes, it, it's ready to go. I've seen people that'll open it up to the public internet by default as they're building it, which mm -hmm. means that they could have somebody already in the server as they're building it. Um, do all that, you know, secure it before you even put it in production, yeah. let it be accessible. Um, I don't think enough people actually do that. And in the case of my example with Linode, I mean, that's not even Linode specific. You have AWS, Google Cloud, whatever, it doesn't matter. You have it reaching the internet, people are gonna try to get in within. Yeah. And I'm sure it, this doesn't happen today. I haven't checked in years, but it's some, I don't know, early 2000s and late 90s, there were distributions that when you were doing the installation, they would fire up an SSH console in the background. Just as you have a terminal on one of the, on one of the screens when you're doing an install, a text mode install, they would fire up an SSH in case you it had a problem and you had to log in and fix the problem during installation, say, to get the, the driver in or something like yep. that. Yeah, I haven't it was completely insecure. I've seen that, yeah. but it was decades ago. But yeah, yeah it happens. I, I, it it yeah, was part of what to expect. Too. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I've seen that decades ago as well. Um, I haven't seen it lately. What I have yeah. seen, I think everyone is doing this now, like the SSH server will be installed, but the service will not auto start. So if you yeah. want to use it, you have to go in and start that. Mm -hmm. Even Arch Linux is that way. Like when I install Arch Linux, sometimes I like to use SSH because it's easier for me. So yeah. but I have to start it manually. Otherwise, I can't run any of my automated scripts to set up Arch Linux. So I have to start that process first. And there we go. I think um, I'm sure someone listening will probably know of one distribution out there that starts <laughs> up SSH still. Hopefully not. Yeah. But um, Hopefully SSH not. Is, we could do a whole episode and we probably will on open SSH and why it's such a pain. It's like the most convenient thing in the world, but also yeah. the biggest pain in the world at the same time. Yeah. And going back to those connection attempts that you said, yep. people just just treat that today as the regular background noise of the internet when you have a server on the internet that's just part of what you're going to expect to have on your system at any given point in time people will be trying to exploit the services that you have and ssh just complains a lot so get your honeypots there so that you have the logs of those attempts not just for ssh but for HTTP and for the email ports and for all those services that you know that you have on other systems so that you get somewhere that is logging those attempts. Because if one of those services in production gets hacked, they'll erase the logs and then you won't know where it came from. And then at least on the honeypot, you'll also have some connection attempts. But one way you can kind of know where something is coming from and correlate things better is to have some sort of log server, a central log yep. server that you can install and correlate events together. And I'll have to admit, it took me a long time to get into log or centralized log servers. I'm using Greylog currently, but mm -hmm. um, because I'm like, you know, if I have a problem, I just look at the logs and I fix it. Well, that was early on in my career, but then I'm like, you know what? There's something to be said about having all your logs on one server and you could correlate the events, but even better, if a server goes belly up and the disk crashes, you lost the logs. You don't know why that happened. Or say gets encrypted by ransomware. Exactly. So you have the logs on a central log server. You can actually look at that and find out yeah. what happened. So yeah. that brings us to another point. You should have centralized logging for sure. You should have some way of having your logs in just one location so that, like you said, you can have some correlation between events. If a specific IP is trying to log onto a server and actually succeeds and he shouldn't, let's see what other logs he has already hit on other systems to see where else he's trying to, to get into. And for the most advanced solutions, this is called the SIAM system. It's a security, it's a security system. Uh, they come at very expensive, very technical solutions that will take lots of time to deploy properly, and then you'll have agents and all that. That's the high end thing, the, the high end spectrum here. You can get a, a workable solution just by piping syslog to other to a specific IP and storing those logs somewhere. And that yeah. works. It's our syslog. It's very easy to configure. You could do that just for a specific subset of services on the machine or for all the logs on that machine. And that way you can have that centralization of logs. You just need to have to store them somewhere with some fast IO storage. And that's basically yeah. the the requirement to have that. But that's something you should not overlook on uh, on your Absolutely. security. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite solution? I know you can our sys you know our syslog can, can connect to whatever. But I know a lot of people also like to use a, a, a drop-in service if they can. Do you have a favorite? No, no, nothing specific. When when I go into a system that I haven't touched before and I don't know what else is on the network or something, I just configure our syslog and get get it done. 
That's if a good there's some, If there's some solution that they already tell me that some they are using or something like that, okay, I'll use that. No, I don't play favorites with that. Oh, I yeah. stopped being yeah. a fundamentalist with uh, with technical <laughs> things a long time ago. It's just there's usually not uh, the best thing. There are lots of things that do lots of stuff good, and you just have to to know the the ones that are actually good for your use case. I don't want to recommend anyone. I think that is um, to use a Buddhist word. It's almost like nirvana. You reach a state of nirvana when yeah. you kind of leave your preferences at the door. And it's really hard for IT people because we can use a technology and just love it. Like, this is the best thing I've used. This is so great. Look at this piece of technology. It does something so amazing. It, it simplifies things, makes it better. This is great. And that's good and all, but there's other technologies out there, especially when you go into operating system debates, Windows versus Linux versus Mac, which I'm not going to get into. Yeah. I'm not going to bore you with that. But even but my mindset nowadays is I don't care what operating system you use. I'm not going to lose any sleep regardless of what one it is. And some people out there care. As long as it solves the need that you have. It's great. Right. It's that one. Exactly. Um, I, I mean, as an aside, I'm not sure I'm partial to Greylog, but I've been playing around with it again. Mm -hmm. I like it. You know, I, I think it's, I think what I like about it is that it has the correlation where you can just search for an IP address and you could kind of see what events are around that IP address. Like maybe they got into this system and they went over here, then over here. And you can kind of easily build a step-by-step -step, uh, look at what mm -hmm. exactly they did to get to where they ended up. And that is, as long as your solution, whatever it is, does that, um, that just makes things easier to troubleshoot even if it's not security related and it's just, um, you know, you have some servers falling over and it, you know, maybe there's a broadcast storm on the network because something yeah, yeah. was configured or a duplicate IP address that you didn't mean to add to it. Um, there's all kinds of things that that can give you. Yeah, if you want to go that route, it's also very useful on scenarios like you have high availability proxy running in front of uh, say a dozen web servers, and then you have application servers behind that and net and database servers. If you can collect the, the logs from all of those servers at the same point, it's going to make your life easier as a sysadmin and your developers are going to love it because you're going to provide them with logs that they can see and trace their applications through. So it's going to help not just the, the sysadmins, but also the devs and they really like that. They, it they really, really helps them do their job. They really do. I, I I worked with a company who was doing it right. Actually, they they had um, servers in the cloud, but they were disposable. They didn't care if a server mm -hmm. went. They could delete a server right now. They could delete three or four, or however many, yeah. it, themselves, and they'll do it right in front of you. They don't really care. Why? Because they have auto healing, and if a, there's a certain number of minimum servers that need to be online and up to a maximum so they could delete two or three of them, it's fine. And you could watch the server come back online. Now, the problem that I was helping them out with is it all works, but the issue is when the server dies and the system deletes it to create a new one in its place, the logs go with it. You'll never know what happened. So if you have an audit or mm -hmm. maybe someone broke into something, those logs die with the server. And you, you can basically tell, and you know this, like have a server that on shutdown could just get its logs out there, but you run into a race condition, especially if the network stops before yeah, yeah, the yeah. logs had a chance to leave the server. So in that situation, a central logging server, is not even a security thing. Well, it could be actually, especially if you're out of it, but the logs are somewhere else centrally available. So it no longer matters if the logs get deleted with the server, then you have them in one central place. Yeah. So definitely look into that. Absolutely. Same thing for containers. If you rely on containers in your infrastructure, just have them all locked to a central solution. 
How did I not mention containers? Wow, I can't. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when you were mentioning yeah. about taking down servers and not caring about it, that's containers. If you use Docker yep. or Kubernetes or Podman or whatever the hell you want to use for that, yep. just yeah, centralized logs. Configure those Docker files to point the logs to a centralized location and be that done with exactly, it. Exactly, exactly right. And, and one of the reasons why I mentioned that with servers, I think this is important for anyone using AWS out there, because it seems like a lot of people don't know this, the, the Amazon Web Services platform is built around your servers may not be there tomorrow. Like I would get emails and, and anyone else would get nervous by you know using a platform like this. We've discovered a problem with your server. We're deleting it on this date. We're deleting it. We're just gonna delete it. Yeah. And, and you know, someone who's new to AWS would probably be like, well, wait a minute, that's bad. Why am I using this service when you know, VMs, they'll just up and delete it. Well, because even if you read their documentation, they whether it's a VM or a container doesn't matter, they want you to develop it in a way where it doesn't matter if your server's there tomorrow. With auto-healing and auto-scaling, you'll get new servers as needed. If it deletes one, that's not a big deal. But that happens, right? Um, other platforms like I think Azure and I think even Google Cloud will treat, you know, treat your servers as pets versus Amazon's, you know, treat your servers as cattle. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, the, the mindset change the, that is required there to look at your servers that way, instead of just looking at those as monolithic things that are stuck there and will never go away. That's a very, you need some effort to, to start thinking of servers that way. You need to some effort to start looking at your storage differently, yeah. at your network accesses differently. It takes some effort to, to look servers that way. It's not just something natural that comes when you, when your whole of your experience has been dealing with regular servers that don't get destroyed after a day or an hour in, of use. When you have servers that last years, it's yeah. really tough to start looking at them as disposable. At least exactly. personally, I found that to be to be hard to 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 change the mindset that way. It is. It, it's extremely hard to do. But I'm a I'm a very big advocate of this because. I don't care what platform you're using, treat your servers as they're disposable. If you can reach that state, that is the best. That is mm -hmm. absolutely the best. You should always reach that state. Now it's not as easy as turning it on. And I've run into all the classic problems such as um, every server having the same name because it's a template or an image and the, and the name of its built-ins. You have to build something to generalize the name or come up with a naming scheme and actually have it change and um, try to make it so that you have no two servers that just so happen to have the same um, host name. There, there's some challenges there for sure, like Joe mentioned, but if you could reach that state and go through the process of solving those problems, then you're reaching, and I'm gonna use the word again, a state of nirvana with your servers, <laughs> or you're doing it right, you could show your yeah. boss, you know, I got these five servers, I'm gonna delete one, watch. And it came right back up and you're testing it and you know it works and you run through all those problems. You will learn more, in my opinion, from going through that process than you'll ever learn from just um, random IT training. Absolutely. And you yeah. can do that at home. Just get a couple of Raspberry Pis, fire up a cluster and just try it there create the virtual machines in it and just run the containers or whatever. And you can replicate all this that we're talking about. This is very easy to, to replicate at all. Absolutely. And, and you know, my other podcast is all about home lab. So that's what it's called. You run things in your home. So uh, there's a whole podcast that I have about that. So mm -hmm. um, the home lab show specifically, I'll, I'll have a link somewhere so people can get to that. Um, another topic that we wanted to talk about, I think this will probably close it out is, um, 
When you're developing in-house applications, when to implement security, and we agree that you should have that mindset from the beginning because it's much harder to yeah. implement security, especially when the culture has gotten insecure, the app wasn't developed that way, yeah. start it that way from the beginning. Exactly. It's really tricky to get stuff like um, access controls into that application to segregate the, the responsibilities of different actors that access the application. That's really tricky to get your developers to do after the application has already been running and your, your staff is already trained to use it as it is. So going in and doing those changes after the fact is really hard. It takes way more effort than actually architecting everything from the get-go to be to take that into consideration. If you're going to have multiple users, prepare your application to segregate roles, to have different roles that you can assign people. Don't assign um, permissions on a per-user uh, basis. Assign those roles on a per-group basis. It's much easier to and much nicer to, to manage that way. Um, take stuff like the, the storage, where you're going to store the data for the application. Make sure it's a different storage than the other ones that you use for your other servers. Segregate that as much as possible. Yep. And just prepare everything when you're designing the application. Absolutely. And obviously, if you, have those, if you have those applications running, I don't know, for 20 years and your infrastructure all depends on that, yeah, you're going to spend a lot of time changing that and getting everything ready and having those security aspects baked in. But uh, if you're going for new applications that you're developing now, that you're preparing now, do take the security side of it uh, into account. Encrypt your data. Don't let it sit uh, and encrypt it on your disk anywhere at any time. Be careful when you're transmitting data through the internet. Don't use HTTP. Always rely on HTTPS. All those kinds of things you need to look at when you're designing things, even between your components. If you have different, uh, different servers, say, for the accounting side and your payment processor is on a different server and is using another technology that you just call, I don't know, some random API through the network, Use encrypted connections there. Don't let it go unencrypted, even if it's just inside your network. Never trust that. And yep. take all that into account. Absolutely. Yeah. And make good decisions. You know, I mean, I've seen some de developers, especially when they're new, you know, they'll have a situation. It doesn't even seem like a security thing. I have a first name field in this in this form, and I have a last name field. I want the user to fill in their information. I don't know how many characters their last name is going to be. So how about I just make that field unlimited because I just don't know. Uh, don't, yeah. you know, just put limits on everything because you don't want to, you know, overflow in any text field just because you made something unlimited or a crazy number of characters. You know, you can make it, you know, a little, little bit up there in, in the number of characters you'll accept. But I, I think your user will forgive you if their entire last name doesn't fit. I'd rather have that one person with a 32 character last name that doesn't get to have their full last name there than um, the whole company on the news, like the next Equifax, because somebody used an overflow to gain root yeah. access. So, exactly. Yep, absolutely. So, in the email that you sent to me, you referred to security as an almost bottomless pit of content. And I have to agree because um, I don't think we're going to run out of anything to talk about anytime soon. I'm really excited about this podcast. We'll have more structure later on as we get more into the swing of things, but this is episode zero. So I think some level 
um, is to be expected here. But I think things went well, and this is our first episode. There's going to be more. We'll we'll come back with a schedule and a website. Mm -hmm. We'll also add this to all the podcast networks at some point in the near future. It could take a few weeks. I'm not exactly sure yet. But we'll announce it in one of these episodes as soon as that's available, where you can download the podcast. For right now, you could just go to learnlinux.tv. I will post all the episodes there. I'll probably continue to do things like that, depending on how it goes. So until um, I tell you to go anywhere else, you could go to learnlinux.tv to get this podcast. And then at some point, you'll get it on your local podcatcher or whatever you use to um, play podcasts with. Um, we'll have the details at some point in the near future. So that being said, this was the first episode. Um, I should say episode zero because, you know, all the cool people start numbering at zero, let's be honest. And yeah. this is Jay. This is Joel. And thanks for listening. <laughs>